1: Welcome back to New Books in American Studies. I'm the co-host of the channel, Lillian Barger. Today my conversation is with George Kotkin, Emeritus professor of history at California Polytech State University. His book, Feast of Excess, A Cultural History of the New Sensibility, published by Oxford University Press, is the topic of this show. Kotkin has given us cultural criticism through a set of provocative portraits of creative Americans at mid-century who defied convention, pushed the boundaries of aesthetics, and forged a new sensibility of personal liberation. From John Cage, who in 1952 explored the musical possibilities of silence in the composition 433, to Chris Burden's 1974 performance piece, Transfixed, nailing him to a Volkswagen. Both defied the standing categories of art and aesthetics. Two dozen dramatic vignettes demonstrate the excess of violence, Sex and madness that blurred the boundaries between art, artist, and audience. Cultural creatives such as Marlon Brando, Lenny Bruce, Andy Warhol, and Ann Sexton populate his pages. The fascination with excess cut across diverse expressions, taking art and audiences into uncharted territories of the imagination. The distinction between high and low art erased. Codkin argues that this avant-garde Pushing the limits with a mania for the new and unfettered subjectivity constitutes American culture today. Yet for all its transgressions, the new sensibility was politically impotent and its excesses fed the explosive growth of capitalism, consumerism, and the golden age of advertising. The new sensibility became stale, expected, and commodified. With a weakened power to shop, it has become our culture, our sensibility, it's still offering the possibility of something passionate and new on the boundary between liberation and limits. Here is my conversation with George Kotkin. Now let me introduce you to the author, George Kotkin. George, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a thrill to be
0: here. I love what you do with your show.
1: Thank you for sharing your thoughts with our audience. Your book is a provocative piece of cultural criticism. But before we get into the book, and you tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, your background and how you came to write Feast of Excess.
0: Okay, well, my background is I'm from New York City, the Bronx and Brooklyn, and I graduated Brooklyn College, and then I went to Ohio State for my PhD. And I've always been interested in intellectual history, though my dissertation was on working class intellectuals and evolutionary thought. And then in 1979, I went to a a, a conference a seminar called the Newtonian and Darwinian Revolutions in American Thought. That's a mouthful. But Bruce Kuklick was one of the people there, David Hollinger, Jim Hoops, and others. And it was at that point that I became interested in the philosopher William James, and then I decided to spend my time with James and continue in intellectual history. And I taught at at, uh, Cal Poly in San Luis Obispo for about 33 years until I retired two years ago.
1: So why Feast of Excess? Why this book? Well,
0: you asked how I got to this point, and I'm afraid like all of my book projects, it was kind of a uh, circuitous and complicated uh, a process. I had been working on, well, maybe 12 years ago, I was interested in writing a book that would look at five or six figures. Andy Warhol, Susan Sontag, Anne Sexton, Uh, James Baldwin, Bob Dylan, and try to bring them together in in a coherent narrative. Well, I was working on that. Maybe I had 100 pages written. And then my wife's family wanted to go on an Alaskan cruise. And so I said, fine. And I figured out, what would I read? Well, I would reread Moby Dick. So as I was reading Moby Dick on this Alaskan cruise, I decided that I wanted to write a book about Moby Dick. So a project on the 60s was overboard, And I wrote the book on Moby Dick. Once I had finished that book, I thought I would return to a book about the 60s. But then I thought, well, you know, maybe now's the time to write a novel. And so I started working on a novel about uh, Friedrich Nietzsche and William James. And as I was working on that, I then moved on, said, ah, it's not right now. So I'll go back to the 60s project. And then it was just a question of finding the right form to do it. And I think I finally did.
1: Well, you know, your book covers 1952 to 1974. Uh, but it's, it's, and it reads, though, like it's today. It doesn't read like you're reading a piece of uh, history, which is why it hit me that this is a piece of historical criticism. And it's are you're using You're using the past Really make, to make commentary about the present. And, uh, in the introduction right away, I noticed he's repeating himself a lot. And I was thinking, this must be bad editing. And then I realized, no, it's on purpose. He's doing this on purpose because that idea of repeat, of repeating was something that you carry throughout the book. And you make that point in a kind of a offhanded way in the introduction. So how do you see this work? Do, am I correct? Is this a piece of cultural criticism?
0: I think all of my work is intended to be more than history. My interest in history is not, um, intense. I, you know, I use history to try and respond to questions that I have, concerns that I have, and that I hope are shared by others. So this book, in a sense, is no different from all the other books that I've written. And I do want to make it lively in terms of responding to controversies and issues that are, are present today, and to try... When I was reading these figures, I wanted to capture them at the moment of when they came up with a concept for a project, when they were writing, or when the their project was done and being received. So I was trying in that sense to mimic uh, to a degree what what I was writing about.
1: Well, the subtitle of your book is A Cultural History of the New Sensibility. What is the new sensibility?
0: Well, the new sensibility was a term that Susan Sontag coined in 64-65, and just right after she did, uh, Tom Wolfe, the man in the white suit, also was using that term, although they were using it quite differently. What Sontag saw in American culture the mid-'60s was uh, a shift, a shift away from the traditional New York intellectuals who would emphasize depth, close reading, the notion that a Marxian or Freudian interpretation could get into the depths of meaning and bring something out. And she thought that was terribly mechanical and boring. What she wanted were works that were exciting, even if only on the surface level. So when she saw a film like Flaming Creatures by Jack Smith that was made in 1963 and that was quite controversial, where you see a bunch of figures, oh, how shall I say it, floating around on screen. The the film work is amateurish. Uh, You can't quite tell what's happening. I don't know what's happening for sure, but there seems to be an orgy at one point. Some people are naked. There seems to be homosexual sex. She thought this was just the greatest thing since ice cream. And what she liked was how it was challenging boundaries, how it had a certain kind of surface beauty. So she was trying to take us away from particular concerns and to expand the cultural horizon. So she would say, I also wanted to break down the distinctions between high and low culture, to blur boundaries, to not be so stuck in the mud intellectually that you couldn't enjoy a Supreme song. And so she said, I love the dance to the Supremes. Now, Sontag did not say that she thought the Supremes were the equal of Dostoevsky in terms of depth, but she said, there's no reason why we have to limit ourselves. The culture is pluralistic. At the same moment, you've got Tom Wolf, who's writing, you know, this prose that is just jumping off the page that's, that's, redundant, with exclamation points, with dashes, with capital letters. And what he's looking at is popular culture as well, but a different popular culture. He's seeing, you know, American creativity and stock car racing. You know, Jimmy Johnson is a hero to him. He sees it in the people who are doing uh, drawings on cars. And of course, even in Las Vegas, Las Vegas, the nightmare for most architects and intellectuals, is something that Tom Wolfe celebrates for its freedom, for its signage, for its, you know, craziness.
1: What is different about this new sensibility, as you describe, with what we uh, think as being, you know, the counterculture?
0: Well, that's a good question. At first, I didn't think of it as being that different. You know, when you look at Sontag and you look at Wolf, they're writing at exactly the moment that the counterculture is uh becoming central. And, of course, the Beatles arrived, wasn't it, in 64 or something? So you can see sometimes that the Beatles are seen as shifting American culture. But as I thought about this, I realized with some others, mostly writing about politics, though Morris Dickstein also writes about culture, that the 60s really begin in the 50s. And I was noticing that many of the people that were considered to be gurus of sorts for those who were 60s radicals begin in the 1950s. And as I started to widen my net, I started to realize that, gee, well before the Beatles were even playing in uh, Germany, you had people like John Cage doing experimental things. You had the Living Theater. You had... American rock and roll, you had all of these expressions in culture that were essentially part of the new sensibility, and I thought then that the very term new sensibility was a good way to refer to something that's sometimes now known as the long 60s, but rather than from like 57, I thought John Cage is always a good place to begin
1: now your your subjects are all expressing what you're, you talk about which is an excess in their yeah. art An excess of violence sex drugs uh, uh pushing the limits of respectability and mm. and risk taking but it wasn't just in their art it was their life it was mm. like they they were doing these things in real life they weren't just doing it you know in their art form yes and so Let's talk about some of these people that you have in your book. You've got, I think, maybe 27 of them or more. Could be. (laughs) Okay. Uh, So let's talk about John Cage, because I think he is an important figure, uh, because what he did so early was so provocative, and Mm -hmm. he really blurred the lines between the art, the artist, and the audience.
0: Yes. Cage is fascinating, but before I talk about Cage... You know, I don't want to give the impression, sometimes overly romanticized, that one has to live a life of excess in order to create art that is excessive. You know that famous line from Flaubert where, be bourgeois and orderly in your regular life so that you may be wild and creative in your art. I think there's a lot to be said for that. And, of course, John Cage is a man who was not excessive in his personal life generally. You know what I mean? He, he was pretty um, steady, working all the time. But now for John Cage, Cage is a revolutionary figure. Um, I'd read a book by Kyle Gann about Cage and got interested in him, in him and then uh, went to a show at MoMA on John Cage and his influence. And it was at that moment that I thought Cage is the person who in many ways it starts with, you know, you can draw a line from Cage to Lou Reed, perhaps even to David Bowie. And in 1952, in two very different ways, Cage was playing with excess, minimalist and maximalist. And that's another thing that the book is about, is how I think you can talk about excess in a minimal way and a maximal way. A minimal way, for example, would be John Cage's famous piece for piano, 433, which debuted at Woodstock, and what it basically was, was uh, a pianist, David Tudor, comes to the piano, you know, sets up the the music, sits down, and follows the the music, but basically strikes nary a key. It's four minutes and 33 seconds of silence. Now, that is as minimalist as you can get, but of course, Cage, who's always um, cagey and, and, and witty... What he, it was about was the fact that there is no such thing as silence, that the audience would be talking with one another, that they would feeling uncomfortable, that they could hear the wind whistling, that they could hear the whatever was going on, and that's what the piece was about, because Cage always wanted you to open up your ears to things that were you were unaccustomed to.
1: He, he was forcing them in that piece to experience their own subjectivity. Which a lot of this idea of subjectivity runs through a lot of these people that they it was all about the sub, the subjectivity of the artist and expressing himself. And he was forcing the audience to do that.
0: Right. So it's a two-way street. It's the subjectivity of the artist, but also for many in the new sensibility, it was about involving the audience in the piece of work. So that in that sense they are, of course, interpreting the work through their own. Manner, And that was one of the things that I, I think is central to the new sensibility. And then, of course, at the end, you know, also in 1952, John Cage stages the first happening. And that's at Black Mountain College. And, you know, they've got... So he's on a, on, a, on a ladder reading poetry. Rauschenberg's got paintings that are, people are looking at. Other people are reading other things. Charles Olson is there. You've got people you know, doing this kind of dance around. And so it's the absolute maximum of, of chaos that's going on. And, you know, that's what he loved. I remember, I think it was for John Cage's 75th birthday. He had a birthday party in a park in, in Los Angeles, and my wife and I went there. And what he had was the park was surrounded on the, on the perimeter by different booths, and each booth had people doing different kinds of music. And you would work your way around the park until you came back to the starting point where John Cage was serving birthday cake for his birthday. But what happened was, wherever you were in the park, you heard quite different things. So in that sense, while everybody was playing at the same time, your position was central to how you experienced the art. And that was something that was important to Cage. It was important to the living theater It was important to certain rock stars. Yeah, that that whole performative aspect in which the lines between audience and performer break down is part of the new sensibility and, of course, something that is with us today.
1: Now, you've got a lot of people in your book, and they're they're musicians, they're novelists, they're poets. They're all kinds of people that are doing very creative, edgy things. And instead of me picking out some of the ones that stood out for me – I want you to, to, who are some of your favorites in this book and, <laughs> and why? They, they might be at a point of where there's a shift or they might be bringing something fresh that others hadn't. Uh. Well, you know,
0: I, I, that's a good question. Uh, I guess I, I turn to, Andy Warhol fascinates me. I, I don't pretend to understand him. But the number of things that he's doing, Over a period of time in so many different ways and willing to challenge propriety, not just with his films, you know, that deal with sexual issues, but, you know, like there's this one film that he makes where he goes up. I think it was the Time Life Building. He goes up to the 40th floor at what, about eight o'clock at night, and he starts filming the Empire State Building across the street and the cameras on a tripod. And nothing happens. Occasionally, of course, you see something very subtle, like clouds are moving, or a plane may go by, but that becomes his film, Empire. And I remember one wag or, or critic said something about, oh yeah, it's an eight-hour hard-on, since it was dealing with a, a phallic structure to, of immense proportions. Then you get Warhol even doing political art with his Death and Disaster series. He does a, a piece of, of art where he takes a a photograph of the, the the electric chair at Sing Sing, the one that, that apparently was used for the Rosenbergs, and then he colors it and reproduces it. So Warhol is somebody that I find uh, pretty amazing. I think Deanne Arbus is amazing in terms of the way she chooses subjects that we would normally ignore and presents them, Depending again upon the viewer, when she had her big retrospective at the Museum of Modern Art, I think it was, or maybe it was the Metropolitan, whatever. Uh, some people would spit on the on the photographs because they found them obscene. They found them disgusting. Other people saw her as having a a close relationship to her subjects, presenting them in a humane fashion. Um,
1: that- and, she, and she was she was photographing what we would people would call freaks.
0: Yes, Um, and she loved freaks and she identified with them. And she was, you know, very seductive in her way. She was very small and she was soft spoken, and generally she was. uh, And she would become friends with them. And some of these people, like the Jewish giant in in the Bronx, she, you know, was in touch with him for 12 years. I think she calls him the Mexican midget. That was someone that she knew. And sometimes, you know, in, in some of the photographs, she was photographing swingers, and usually one of the assumptions of photojournalism and of journalism in general and even his history is that one has a certain distance from one subject. So you see her taking a picture of these two swingers, and then suddenly you see one of the swingers taking a picture of her laying naked on this guy's knee. So she was becoming part of the art itself so that those lines that you talked, you know, we were talking about between types of art and the artist and the um, subject really do break down. And coming to familiarity with, with, uh, I was going to say Eric Burden, who was the lead singer of The Animals, but with coming to terms with uh, Chris Burden, I found him fascinating for his willingness to refuse very particular lines of what constitutive art of performance of the role of the body in performance and of the role of the audience in performance i mean many people may not know about chris Burton. he died just last year but in beginning in the early 70s he started to do art where his body was the uh was a site for the art. In one piece, he had himself locked into the middle locker of three of a high school college locker, and I think he was there for three or four days. And people could walk by and talk to him. But on top of him, he had a uh, water so he he could drink some water, and below him he could basically uh, relieve himself. And that was the piece was just to exist in a locker for a number of days. In another piece from 1971, and perhaps his most controversial, he invited a number of friends to this place, and the invitation read, at such and such a time, I will be shot. You're invited. And people came, and there was someone there with a 22 caliber rifle, and uh, he was shot. Now, one could say that this is, of course, performance art. This is pushing the limits as uh, John Cage's mother said to him after she had heard his composition, 433, John, don't you think you've gone too far this time? Well, I imagine that Chris Burden's mother and father would have said, don't you think you've gone too far this time? Well, he only wanted to be grazed in the arm, but, you know, it's not an exact science shooting someone. But what happened was that in some ways, as Maggie Nelson has pointed out, this piece is also about the role of the audience. How could you, as a friend of the artist, allow your friend to be shot in the arm or maybe somewhere else? And another piece that he did in Chicago in the same period, he laid down on this gallery floor. People were there, and hour after hour passed. Uh, Roger Eber, who was then a young reporter in Chicago, was supposed to cover it. After about five hours, he said, I'm going to the bar. Call me if anything happens. Hours. Day passes. He hasn't moved from the floor. Finally, after a couple of days, I think, someone gets a glass of water and walks onto the stage and puts it next to this prone body of Chris Burden. Burden gets up, takes a drink of water, walks toward, I think it was a clock that was nearby that was recording the time. Takes a hammer, breaks the clock, and walks off. So, in that sense, it was about the audience's willingness to allow this person to 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 punish himself, and how long they would allow it. That's uh, that's going far.
1: So, let's talk about you. Don't spend a lot of time on this, but it's there. Of the the critics, uh, you know who who been critic critiquing high literature and art and. Uh, music, and all of a sudden they've got all this on their hands. <laughs> how did the critics respond to
0: all this? Generally with less than enthusiasm, <laughs> although, you know, you, you do find that it, it, saying that, uh, one time uh, somebody had left a whole bunch of issues of the old partisan review on, on a desk at Cal Poly for someone to take away, and so, of course, I couldn't resist that. And as I was going through them, I was surprised at how much interest they were showing in this artwork. Now, they weren't always enthusiastic about it, but for example, the partisan review at one point had a, uh, an excerpt from Philip Roth's Portnoy's complaint about him, uh, shall we say, spending time with himself. And that was not the kind of thing that the traditional partisan review would necessarily be highlighting. So you do see, um, interest, but for much of the critics who were traditionalists it was difficult but some try to move with the times at first uh Leslie Fiedler calls them the new mutants and is not very enthusiastic and then before you know it he's smoking uh dope and uh you know becoming a celebrant of it so but of course then on the other hand someone like Sontag who is seen as celebrating it starts to break away as the uh cultural revolution continues in non-political ways she she grows frustrated and she becomes more politically engaged
1: yeah, this is okay this this is a good segue to uh, a concern i have uh, your subjects are very much about su- subjectivity self-expression there doesn't seem to be a lot in 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 this work self-reflection or an expression of any sort of social virtues of so uh, of social concern. Are they uh really just uh individualistic uh or individualism taken to an extreme ex- excess? Or is there political is there political there is some, but it seems like overall there's not a lot of concern with structures of power uh-huh. except just to make fun of them. Uh-huh. But not of change.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, it was in this period that the phrase the personal is the political was, was coined. And I think for many of these people, the personal was the political, though I don't know that necessarily it meant that one could not be engaged in a movement. I mean, you think about Ginsburg, who was in many ways uh, a, a great exemplar of the new sensibility, but who was politically engaged all the time. Uh, Mailer, of course, writes about the March on Washington, about the various conventions. Gore Vidal is politically active. Um, but I think you're right that by, and, and, and of course, Amiri Baraka is very active in the black arts movement and the black liberation movement. But I think that for many of these individuals, um, Political action is, is confined to going to demonstrations, uh, signing petitions, and things like that. Most of them are people of the left, as you would imagine. Uh, but beyond that, I don't think most of them had a deep understanding of structures of power and things like that. But then again, that was oftentimes the critique of much of the... Uh, student movement of the 1960s. I mean, I think in SDS you had people of that analysis, but the people in SDS oftentimes looked askance at the more cultural revolutionaries.
1: Right, because there's, there seems to be an emphasis on the personal per- uh, liberation. Mm-hmm. Whether Although
0: personal liberation and political liberation were oftentimes seen as part of the same, you know, two sides of the same coin. Yeah.
1: Okay, now, the... Uh- they, they express a lot of, uh, desire, personal desire, power, personal power, asserting them, their personal, uh, will on the world, uh, through art, you know, mm-hmm. by changing things and adapting things, which, you, I think you you point this out, but I saw that as being sort of coming into what you talk about as being the, the engines of capitalism, desire and power. Mm-hmm. that is what capitalism sort of grabs onto in order to expand you know consumer desire yes power um, so do you how do you see how do you see their work uh playing into this uh ma- massive growth of consumer society and capitalism and uh, economic power
0: yeah that's a perfect question um a good friend of mine who is a labor and economic historian, loved the book, Nelson Lichtenstein, but he's, he, as he told me yesterday, you don't deal enough with capitalism. And I was conscious of that. And I guess my response is as follows, however inadequate it will no doubt be. You know, Fitzgerald in the 1920s said, stated what seems to me the obvious, that culture follows money. And obviously, much of this is... A function of the rise of uh, of consumerism, it's the rise of, of of money culture, and all of this helps the artist. And yes, however, I don't want. I mean, capitalism goes up and down in terms of, of of its success. You know, there are minor depressions, there are minor setbacks, and you don't necessarily see the new sensibility. Um, you know, halting in its footsteps, I think what I wanted to emphasize that there and this is not in a Clement Greenberg sense of way, in that art is only artists responding to other artists, but I think once you let loose these gates in the early fifties when you do have this expanding um, capitalist economy, you do have this sense that these artists are responding to this freedom that seems to be. Now, sometimes this freedom can be co-opted and used as in the cultural Cold War. I don't reject that for a second, but I don't think when John Cage is doing his work or when uh, uh, Robert Rauschenberg is erasing the de Kooning, that the state of capitalism is anywhere on their mind other than, I suppose, as a protest, you know?
1: No, I mean, I I, I agree with you on that. I don't think it is a sort of conscious thing, but uh consumer capitalism markets is driven by instigating in people desire and power. that's how you sell products to people right. This product will you know fulfills a desire and it gives you power and and that's and this is sort of the message that this is what they're working with. This is the raw material that these artists are working with desire and power that's why I'm asking that question yeah
0: and look, and I suppose it's also. The question is, how is that desire and power related to liberation? Now, that may not be, it could be a false liberation, because, of course, what freedom do we have in our ability to choose between 17 different brands of soap or or, uh, laundry powder? But, I mean, I think, you know, Tom Frank wrote that book years ago in which he talked about, uh, as I recall, that advertisers, rather than, you know, They came up, they were fascinated by the cultural revolution that was occurring, not simply because they thought it could sell products, because it was going to liberate them from all these tired formulas that they were expected to use to sell products. So I think that, yes, of course, all of this is related to the power of the individual to and to liberation, which has, of course, uh, a dual aspect. On the one hand capitalism's power is to uh, convert, to uh, divert, and to, you know, take over. I think that's a given. I mean, even, you know, you, you know, Huey Newton and, and all the radicals, in a sense, can become, Che Guevara becomes a, a consumer symbol. So I, I think the, the power of capitalism doesn't need to be stated. I think it's obvious. But um, these individuals, we're working within those confines, but oftentimes you're trying to undermine it. Like performance art is by definition, or at least generally, something that is designed to break away from consumerism and art
1: markets. So this is exactly, this is, there's the irony there that these mm-hmm. artists are trying to break away, but the art is so uh, trapped by the raw materials that they have to work with that they really can't escape. Uh, there really, there's no escape uh, from from the culture. Well,
0: I suppose by definition, there's no escape from culture. You know, these are the webs yes. of significance in which we live, according to Gertz and, and Max Weber. But I mean, you think about it, and it becomes almost every man and every woman uh, an artist in that. You know, the uh, Andy Warhol takes a. a a movie camera and creates art. Chris Burden, you know, crucifies himself to an old Volkswagen and makes art. So in that sense, you are getting artists who are certainly aware of that kind of culture and doing their best to to subvert it. I suppose.
1: Right, but it's almost like it, it's very difficult for them to be over against what they're critiquing because there's so much in it, and we're all in it.
0: Yeah, it's, ain't that the truth?
1: And we can't we can't <laughs> escape it, which is. Well, the whole idea of you know the artist or the intellectual, the alienated artist or intellectual who can stand uh-huh. outside and critique from the outside, uh, I think they're a good example that that really can't. It doesn't happen.
0: Well, I'm not. Sh- yeah, um, maybe that's <laughs> why we, we we still have the system we have. It, its power is immense, and uh, the notion of being able to transcend it fully is is, is impossible. Uh, just as much in the classroom as it is in the art world, or who knows, maybe even the Bernie Sanders campaign.
1: So, you're, because your book is a, a cultural critique, and it, I think it has so much present, uh, presence, <laughs> it, uh, how would you see this new sensibility expressed today? And, I, I mean, I've been thinking about what you've said, and I'm seeing it everywhere, uh-huh. uh, something that was... We know it's there, but she actually named it for me. I, I wasn't aware of this new sensibility, and now I'm aware of it, and I have a name for it, but it had a beginning. Mm-hmm. Uh, so where do you see it expressed today?
0: Well, some might say that it has an end because we've gone so far and things have gotten so crazy that, you know, how much farther can you go? But I was thinking about this the other day. You know, it's a good question you bring up because David Bowie had, had passed, and I, I was never a huge David Bowie fan, but I started reading uh, about Bowie. And I came upon an interview that he did with Vanity Fair magazine. And one of the, you know, they asked these, these open-ended questions. And one of them was something like, what is your favorite journey? And David Bowie responded, the road of artistic excess. And then somewhere else I saw David Bowie say that his ideal art would mix Schoenberg with Little Richard. And I'm thinking, man, oh, man, here we're talking blurred genres in a big way. And then in 1999, he said something to the effect that I learned that that mixing elements of bad taste and good taste oftentimes produce the most interesting results. And so in Bowie, I think you see exactly the same thing. And in many other artists today, you get this what the new sensibility did is open up avenues to the outrageous and the outstanding. Now, sometimes those were confluent. Other times they just seemed outrageous and horrible. And, but in the best of all worlds, they came together. So, with someone like Philip Glass, I think, you know, minimalism is brilliant. With someone like, uh, Madonna, sometimes in her bitter moments, I think the maximalism was was great, and so I think we still have John Waters. I think is you know taking the camp sensibility, which is also central to the new sensibility. I think you have you know great art being done, or at least I like it.
1: In a more pedestrian, sort of ordinary (laughs) expression of the new sensibility, I thought about things like reality TV, Uh uh, you know, social media, where bullying and meanness have become standard values are is there a, is uh, is there an anti-humanistic aspect to this
0: That's a good question You know you can say that reality TV has its origins back in the early 70s I think that was when an American family debuted I I think I mentioned that in passing you know with the loud family So reality TV does have a long history and I think you're absolutely right that uh such things as uh, simple uh, human conversation has been replaced by meanness, by going too far. It's over the edge. I think it's disgusting um, sometimes. Uh, I mean, I'm thinking of things
1: like The Bachelor and uh, Springer Show and uh, <laughs> some of this the stuff where uh, people will say anything and do anything. To win, it's
0: like in politics today, you think?
1: Well, I was going <laughs> to get to that. I mean, is, is Donald Trump a, an example of a new kind of politician? He's not only a businessman and a capitalist, but he's also a product of reality reality TV. That's yeah. how he became a celebrity, and this is why he has so much play. People have seen him on reality TV, mm-hmm. and so it's a new kind of politician. Is there ideology there? Who knows? He's he's a performance
0: artist extraordinaire. Right. Unfortunately, all of the performance is meant to boost his ego and to flim flam, and that's what makes it, I think, outrageous and not outstanding, other than in terms of the pathetic success he's having. But there's a, a line that I, that I from Roger Shattuck, who I think is a, a really fine uh, writer and cultural critic now passed, but Shattuck um, said something that when he wrote a book about censorship, he said something that for him, the key to great art is to have a balance, to reconcile liberation and limits. And I still think that there's truth to that. Do you know what I mean? I know that sometimes going too far can lead to uh, wonderful work, and going too far can lead to terrible work. And I do think that nowadays in our popular culture, you know, it's and it's as it has been, anything that sells is what's going to happen. And so I think, yes, reality TV, you can say does have some of its origins in this kind of work. It may even have origins in Dada. Uh, it's not my cup of tea. And I, I can see it, you know, all movements... Give birth to various expressions, some that seem more in keeping with the imperatives of the original movement, and some that are less so. And I suppose, in that sense, that kind of multiplicity is as central to the legacy of the of the new sensibility as anything else. You know what I mean?
1: Right. So it's it's just it's just the question that I had for you because it seemed like uh, there was an anti-humanistic. Uh, strain throughout all this work
0: yeah i think yes and no i mean you know maybe the one thing is that it is obviously a rather capacious house the new sensibility you know and i'm trying to hold it together by excess and you think of you know that in that house humanism did exist um i think that you know Dylan and some of the others are trying to be humanistic. Styron, I think, in his way, is trying to be humanistic. Arbus, in her way, is trying to do that as well. Uh, Erica Young is also. But I think at this point in time, the exuberance was, of course, anchored in breaking away from the polite, boring, uh, you know, culture of what. They saw as mainstream culture in the 1950s. And of course, culture is never absolutely singular. I mean, the, 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 the new sensibility, you know, coexists with what, you know, I don't, what were some of the big songs? I mean, for everything that you had that was new sensibility, you had the, oh, you know, the Carpenters <laughs> were singing. I mean, I wouldn't put them in the new sensibility, but they had number one hits. And sometimes I suppose one could be a fan of, 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 Jerry Lee Lewis or of, uh, of uh, the Grateful Dead and of the Carpenters, but in general, uh, probably not.
1: <laughs> so what is, it, what is it about this new sensibility that you would like, you want the reader to take away?
0: Well, I want them on a, the most simple level to say that maybe the new sensibility is a good way of capturing a major stream in American culture that's origins can be seen in the early 50s with John Cage reaching out and still existing today and perhaps taking various roads, some of which you and I uh, are less than thrilled with, but still having a common denominator. I want intellectual and cultural historians to be willing even... To be willing to cut across boundaries. I mean, I tried to deal with poets, with artists, with uh, novelists, with filmmakers, with all different kinds of performance artists. And I think one nice thing is to see how cultural change and cultural expressions Occur and also permeate in so many different areas at approximately the same time. So, what you see in Lenny Bruce's comedy is what you see in Ginsburg's poetry. It's what you see in Warhol's art. It's what you see in Dylan. I think that's important that we cast our net as live as widely as possible. And then I wanted to illuminate, as I guess I haven't tried in most of my work, to show how the work influences the the life you can illuminate the life through the work, but also the work can be used to illuminate the life. Or did I get that mixed up? The point is that it's a back and forth. I don't want to reduce life to work and work to life, but to show how these two things were working together. And then I guess the main thing is to produce uh, a book that's that's accessible. That while I'm beholding to scholarship, and you know, in that famous phrase, I stand on the shoulders of giants. Um, I also want it to be something that can be read for pleasure. I'm That's what I'm hoping. Well, it's
1: very pleasurable to read. It's well very well written. It's Thank fascinating. You. it's like a movie
0: all right but but, but a, a warhol movie yeah. where it wanted to bore you after eight hours
1: no no no, no. <laughs> uh, the, also I think that there's something here that that needs that we could go further with with a new sensibility is it's its connection to we've already kind of touched on it. Economics and but politics, which you've already touched upon, I think that there's probably a lot of exploration that could be done with this.
0: Yeah, I mean politics is never far from this because the politics of all these issues that they focused on are are crucial. For example, uh, violence in in celebrate, you know, they're not celebrating violence, but they're bringing it to the forefront. I mean, who would ever have thought that Andy Warhol? Would be doing pictures of, of, of uh, electric chairs. I mean, he was very much upset when Carol Chessman, who was a, uh, a murderer, was finally executed. And so, in that sense, you can see his art as being uh, political. Lenny Bruce, for all of his use of dirty words, was not just braying against censorship, but was also taking stands on racial equality. Bob Dylan was, of course, taking stands. John Coltrane, in his work from 64-65, is also trying to capture this. Uh, Baraka, uh, all of these, uh, Young, Erica Young's work, you know, uh, is, is of course, about sexual liberation, which is a personal level, uh, but it's also about liberation. So, in a sense, what this work is about is the liberation of the self, And in order to liberate the self, I think all of these people would agree, getting back to your earlier point, that um, that requires a change in the social situation. The one where you see that the least, I I suppose, is sometimes in uh, figures like uh, Denise Scott Brown and Robert Venturi. I mean, I, I don't know what their politics are. I assume they're progressive But their work on Las Vegas is mostly concerned only with the form, uh, you know, with the the style, you know, and so that seems to me to be the most surface, but it's very pluralistic, and they're saying, let's look at our society and see how all these different styles can somehow coexist and not rest comfortable with architecture has to be only one way. So in that degree... I think all of these figures are incredibly valuable for saying the way it's usually been done is not the only way. And oftentimes, you know, in any revolution, the first stage is to throw everything overboard, and that's what many of them are doing.
1: So I'm going to go back a little bit to something you said earlier in the book. You you cast it within maybe the idea of uh, the modernism, the early 20th century and some of the critics of modernity, uh how does it also re- talk about that a little bit, and how does it relate to what we now consider postmodernism, which uh, which is, I know, a very complicated <laughs> concept, and nobody really knows what it means. So uh, can you talk a little bit about that, their connection with? Uh, well, make it up.
0: more of us who don't quite know what it means. <laughs> well, let's just put it this way. Modernism was many different rivers flowing at the same time and, of course, cutting across many different boundaries, rejecting Victorian certitude in many ways, making the artist a you know, sort of creator. I mean, you can come up with all these definitions, but there was definitely a movement that I think one can feel comfortable calling modernism. In an earlier book, when I was looking at American modernists, what I found was that they were reluctant modernists. That is, that for all of their acceptance of experimentalism and art, they still upheld certain, uh, bourgeois values, certain Victorian values, so that sometimes these, these shifts are not as absolute as we'd like to think they are. But of course, by the late 40s and early 50s, one can make the argument, and I guess even earlier in the 30s with the Museum, Metropolitan Museum of Modern Art, that modernism had become, if not calcified, At least it had become a kind of of ism, a a concept in which, rather than allowing things to grow, it seemed to make them into an almost kind of holy writ. And there you had critics like Clement Greenberg and Harold Rosenberg, at least in terms of art, defining what constituted the modernist canon, you had museums supporting that, and of course you had collectors supporting that, and modernist artists some have argued, at least in its move toward abstractionism, was quite um, easily serving the purposes of the Cold War by being exported abroad to show how free Americans were and stuff like that, though there was oftentimes people who didn't like the art and fought against it. But so I guess these figures, while you can see aspects of them in Modernism. You can also see many of the aspects in terms of pluralism, because pluralism is, I mean, I'm sorry, in terms of postmodernism, because if postmodernism is about anything, it's about breaking away from master narratives. It's about plurality. It's about blurring lines between genres, between high and low culture. So I suppose that many of these figures would be comfortable in postmodernism. However, most of them, it seems to me, are not about effacing the self. You know, you talked earlier about their subjectivity. And I think don't hold me to this, but I think that most postmodernists tend not to dwell on the subjectivity of the artist. So so yes, there's a relation, but it's not an exact one.
1: Okay. Is that no yeah, that's no that's great. So George What are you working on now?
0: Well, I was thinking about returning to my novel, but I've decided that I would like to write a book that is more of a traditional narrative with a narrative arc, with excitement, with figures that come together and that captures an era. So I think I'm going to write a book about Jack Dempsey and Gene Tunney. I know that's a <laughs> that's a, a break, <laughs> but uh, I, I think it'll be called Luck, Pluck, and Thrills: Jack Dempsey, Gene Tunney, and the 1920s.
1: So, are you gonna are you gonna do it this in the genre of the New Sensibility? Uh, I'll
0: get back to you on that. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I mean, I'm just starting to research it. I I'm not. I was when I was much younger a boxing fan and then I uh, moved away from it because of the violence and I didn't approve of it. But for some reason, I've just become entranced with Dempsey Tunney and their personalities and how in some ways they define the 1920s perhaps more than Fitzgerald and Hemingway do. And I'd like to use them as a conduit to understanding the period and to understanding their lives and what they meant to America. I could change next week, but that's it right now.
1: (laughs) Well, thank you, George. You've written a fascinating book. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in to another edition of New Books in American Studies. It would be a pleasure to hear from you. Drop me a line at newbooks.americanstudies at gmail.com. This is your host, Lillian Barger.